Welcome to The Pestle, reviewing and breaking down movies to look for insights into the movie-making process. Hosted by Chumbawamba. Remember Chumbawamba? Yeah, Chumbawamba. Let's dim the lights and start the show. Welcome, everybody, to The Pestle. Today's show is brought to you by Bel Air Academy, the finest school in greater Los Angeles with an up-and-coming basketball team is now officially closed for enrollment, but we encourage you to look elsewhere next year at Bel Air Academy. Welcome, everyone, to The Pestle. I am Wes. And I am Todd. And this is a movie podcast where, as filmmakers, we try to look at a film and determine whether it was good or not based on a five-point metric. No, not at all. Like, we we subjectively yeah. look at these things. And, and uh, one of the fun things about, I don't know, the process of doing this is... I'm getting better at not necessarily picking apart everything I watch because I feel like I exercise this muscle. And if I'm not wanting to do it, I don't have as hard a time turning it off so I can get sucked into a movie or whatever. And one of the fun things that uh, this past week has kind of shown me is I've also changed the way I think about whenever whenever I hit play on a movie. Um, We were talking about I Am Legend and I just like spending time with Will Smith and this idea that I want to spend time with this actor, or I want to spend time, you know, in this universe uh, is kind of the way I literally frame things in my mind. I was flipping through Netflix a couple of days ago and I was like, what is this? Oh, I, I don't know what this movie is, but Jeffrey Wright is in it. And I love Jeffrey Wright. I'll, I, I'd love to spend some time with him. <laughs> and it's like, I don't know this guy, but to me, I was like, yeah, I get to spend time with an actor that I think is uh, really incredible. And I think what struck me about that is this past week, we've had, you know, a number of people that have been active, you know, around the show uh, from our audience. So, like, I've been exchanging emails with Izzy and, you know, where we usually have something, you know, a thread going on. I'm sure you see those pop up on your notifications here and there. But also, like, Hannah tagged us in some of her IG stories. And I think she was going through Inception. Um, and then Andrew Deitch uh, dropped a comment on YouTube, which is funny because he also has a really badass uh, podcast and YouTube series that I'll link in the I'll link it in the show notes because it's really cool. It's him and his buddy who is uh, in a wheelchair and it, they make content. I mean, some of it's kind of aimless fun, uh, but he also makes content that is aimed at helping people in the wheelchair community, you know, in different ways, like, you know, here's different things, different ways to think about it or how to overcome certain scenarios. But him commenting and all, you know, everyone around it, it just kind of reframed the way that I'm like, the same way I'm thinking about I want to spend time with, you know, Will Smith or Jeffrey Wright, they're consciously hitting play whenever they listen to us and then, you know, dropping a comment or tagging us or anything like that obviously means a lot. But I thought it was just a really cool concept that people are choosing to spend time with us. And in a similar way, they probably feel like they know us. I mean, for one, we spend, we share a lot of our freaking life on the show, I guess. Um, But I just thought that was really cool. Like people consciously decide to, to hang out with us for an hour, you know, as, as their time allows and as they feel like it. Yeah. I love that. I mean, I guess it's an outlet for, for me too, for both of us really, but I mean, we try to make it about the movie, but how can you not include yourself in your opinion of some of art, especially when you're an artist yourself? I think it actually takes away from your opinion if you don't, you know, it's like feel probably feels more stagnant. So, I mean, I'm nothing if not attempting to be real at all points whenever, uh, you know, I, I put myself out there, or I like put a pin, an opinion out there. 
what that means, I don't know. I mean, I'm 40 and I'm still trying to figure out who the hell I am. So, and if, I mean, if anybody's out there knows who they are, I mean, good for you. Maybe you can teach me, but I think that, I think that it's important, you know, to put yourself in your statements, you know, in your opinions, put your experiences in your opinions. And that just makes your opinions more real, your thoughts more real, the the statement that you're making more, more real and people can identify with it more. I think I love doing these for that reason, probably equal to reviewing movies, just being able to talk to you and, and to the people out there and, you know, relate what I saw to how I feel in my life, either in general or currently, or, you know, whatever, how does it speak to me? How does it relate to me? And yeah, that's, that's at least half of what I get out of these every week is a soundboard for my, I don't know, my existence, I guess, you know, I mean, that's the point of movies, right? Is like point out these things that either you've experienced or maybe you, you haven't, but you're trying to empathize with the characters. And so it, it, you know, brings up things either from your past or from your present. And we should talk about these things. We should identify these things. That's what the artists who made them wanted us to do. Sit around, talk about how did that make me feel? You know, honestly, like, I, I mean, this movie was a great example. I, I, you know, I didn't grow up in a rough neighborhood. You probably grew up in a rougher neighborhood than I did. So I'm curious how you felt about this film. And yeah, and we'll get into that. But really good point there. Nice. Yeah. What are we doing today? Oh, so today, if if you haven't seen it, pause this and and go watch it. We're, we're doing Dope, which I had never even heard of, to be honest. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So if you haven't seen it again, pause because we're going to, you know, there's going to be spoiler alerts all over the place. Absolutely. We'll talk about uh, very few, a lot of things within a very short, small framework. And one sense, we'll talk about cinematography and I'll try to make a point on what I mean by that here in a second. But if I don't, don't let me forget, Todd. <laughs> um, but we'll, no promises. <laughs> we'll mainly talk about story and writing, which I, I, realize some people might see that I, I separate those into, you know, slightly different categories. They're, they're bunched together, but I point them out as story and writing, not just story or just writing. And it's, it's a, it's a nuanced, you know, view. I maybe on my part, I don't know if this is, you know, clinical or, you know, definitive, but I think of story as substance, like what, what are we talking about? And I think of writing as the style, like, kind of like you might discuss clothes and you might also discuss fashion. Like they're, they're kind of talking about the same thing, but in very different ways. And so we'll talk about story and writing. We'll talk about coming of age stories, writing humor, upping the stakes, kick the dog storytelling and other such stuff and things and stuff. And a quick synopsis of the film life changes for Malcolm, a geek who's surviving life in a tough neighborhood after a chance invitation to an underground party leads him and his friends into a Los Angeles adventure. I'm going to butcher these names. Uh, it's written and directed by Rick Famuyiwa. Uh, cinematography by Rachel Morrison, starring Shamik Moore as Malcolm, Zoe Kravitz as Nakia, Kersey Clemens as Diggy, Tony Revolori as Jib, ASAP Rocky as Dom, Forrest Whitaker as the narrator. Let me tell you about two students. Student A is a straight-A student who lives in the suburbs of Los Angeles. He plays in a punk band with his best friends. He loves his skateboard and riding his BMX bike. His favorite TV show is Game of Thrones and his favorite band is The Thermals. He's a 90s hip hop geek. 
student B goes to an underfunded school where teachers who rather not be there teach kids who really don't care. He lives with a single mother, doesn't know his father, and is so dope. Now close your eyes. Picture each of these kids and tell me what you see. Be honest. No one's going to judge you. Now open your eyes. So my student A or student B, my geek or menace, for most of my life I've been caught in between who I really am and how I'm perceived, in between categories and definitions. I don't fit in. And I used to think that that was a curse, but now I'm slowly starting to see. Maybe it's a blessing. See, when you don't fit in, you're forced to see the world from many different angles and points of view. You gain knowledge, life lessons from disparate people and places. And those lessons, for better or worse, have shaped me. So who am I? Allow me to reintroduce myself. My name is Malcolm Adekambi. I'm a straight-A student with nearly perfect SAT scores. I taught myself how to play guitar and read music. I have stellar recommendations and diverse extracurricular activities. I'm a Google Science Fair participant, and in three weeks, I helped make over $100,000 for an online business. So why do I want to attend Harvard? If I was white, would you even have to ask me that question? It's my turn So this being your your first go round, I'm curious, like having not even heard of it, which is really cool. How did hitting play affect you? Like, what was your experience through this? I loved this movie. <laughs> I absolutely loved everything about this movie. There wasn't. a, I mean, the, the, OK, so the only thing that bothered me was honestly the sound in the in the voiceover mm. stuff. It just it wasn't done well and which was surprising because everything else like the sound everywhere else was fantastic yeah. and it was to, i was in it and it was fine but the vo from forrest whitaker was like i don't know it was too close to the mic it wasn't mm. it just wasn't recorded like i mean you compare it to say shawshank redemption mm. right where you know you don't hear breaths and plosives and stuff like that you you it's just someone talking in a room Right. It doesn't even sound like room. They're just talking and it's just whatever. You can't even hear the room. But this I could hear the room huh. in the voiceover and I could hear plosives and stuff. It was like, that's weird. But it didn't take me. Out. It didn't completely take me out because I thought like the, the cinematography was great. Camera work and movement was great. The acting was fantastic. The writing was perfect. It was just everything about it was great. Just that's the only thing that bugged me. And even in the the ending that you just played. It's like, did they lob him or something? I don't know. Did they? Did the sound guy, did they not have him for that day or something? And they had to like pull in some rando? I don't know. It was just weird. But everything else, dude, everything about it was like amazing. It was fantastic. The story was so, so much fun. It was, I was watching it here. I had kids over and they were running around screaming. And I was just in my room just like watching this thing. And then we had... I had an issue, wasn't downloading, right, mm -hmm. whatever. So I had to go through all of these hoops and jumps after an hour into the movie. So I was like, oh, I need to finish this movie. <laughs> I was so, you know, into it. Yeah, I loved it. I loved everything about it. It was so much fun and serious when it needed to be and heart-wrenching when it needed to be. It's funny because, so you, you mentioned like all the cinematography being really good. And it, to me, this is perfect cinematography because I never really thought about it. I was, yeah, I, I, it Richard never Morrison, occurred to me. man. 
Rachel freaking Morrison. Like, I, yeah, I read that. I'm like, oh my God. Yeah, she's done everything great. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I was just completely enveloped in the story. And that's that's the trick of storytelling is to not make people look at the at the trick. It's making them, you know, get engaged with the story. And so I never felt, you know, bothered or annoyed or even impressed with a, with a particular camera move or anything. I was just so much in tune emotionally and with the characters and the stakes that they were, you know, creating. I, yeah, I, so the idea that I didn't make one single, you know, comment or note on cinematography to me was a joy. Now, I think they also kind of, for me anyway, hit a a bit of a cheat code because you have all this 90s hip hop going on that I can't think of anything else other than, you know, Nas, you know, playing or Black Sheep or what have you. And so I was just completely enthralled, you know, with the, with the music that was happening. You mentioned something, I think, uh, you know, at the, the show opening about, knowing who you are and being comfortable with who you are. And that's such at the core of, you know, this movie. And so I'm, I'm curious, you know, even though, like you said, this wasn't necessarily the kind of neighborhood you grew up in uh, and same, I mean, obviously I didn't grow up, you know, in Inglewood, California, I grew up in a town with less than 2000 people in it, but not to say I don't have some of these experiences, you know, in there, but I'm curious if, or what the overlaps, you know, that you connected with are. Well, I love nineties hip hop. I love 90s everything. So immediately identified with that. I also identified with the fact that he was different and just owned it, right? Even though he knew he was a geek, he was self self described geek, right? And they all three of them were. But that didn't bother them, right? I mean, they were different and they knew it and they you know, like he probably wished he had more guts to go up and talk to the girl and, and all that stuff and, and stuff. But who doesn't? I mean, even if you're the captain of the football team, you're still nervous. But he just, you know, he had a flat top. He wore 90s clothes. Like he wasn't trying to hide the fact that he, you know, I don't know, wasn't into <laughs> Jamiroquai. I don't know. Yeah. It, it Like, you know what I'm saying? Like he he just knew he was different and he embraced it. And I loved that. I totally identified with that. Um, I like the soft spokenness of him. And then I loved his friends <laughs> having a lesbian as part of the, part of the dude group was like brilliant. So, so that, and the, the awkwardness of being around drugs, that much drugs, like not knowing, like when he said, I don't know anything about this. I don't know how much this cost. What is this worth? Like, what do you do with it? I have no idea. Like that's even currently now how I, how I totally am. If I came across anything, I'd be like, I don't know what this is. What do I what do I do with my hands? You know, like just <laughs> completely at a loss because if it's outside of your world, then you just kind of don't know what to do. He's never been in this much danger before. Right. And how do you respond to danger? And he's just like scared and, and, and shaking, you know, but then it's also about life experience. And then, you know, by the end of it, he's not only is he more relaxed and used to it, he's, he takes advantage of what he is good at within the the context of this illegal stuff that he's been doing right by trapping the the what was aj Mm -hmm. with the bitcoin situation which is just brilliant right and it's brilliant writing i totally didn't see it coming i absolutely didn't see it coming so when it did i was like oh how could i not see this coming (laughs) like you know this is a typical thing that you should see coming and i did not see it coming that was in the writing but just character wise, I don't, I don't know. I think that, that the acting was fantastic because he, 
he had this innocence to him, but at the same time, you could tell that there was something else underneath. Like he was so many times like these smart characters, they get played by, they get played by someone who can kind of act pompous, you know, because they are smart and they know they're smart. But in this regard, I never got that. Even when he got angry, like when he got angry at Nakia on the couch, you know, it wasn't because he thought he was smarter than her. It was because he thought she was using him. So it, he's allowed to get angry, but not be like, I know more than you. He never had that. He was never about that. And so I can relate to that. I think most people could relate to that kind of character because they don't want to be the pompous guy, right? They, even if they are, they don't want to see themselves in that character. Absolutely. So and I, I, and, and yeah. in, in his community, like they kind of set up at the beginning that his intelligence was a mark against him. And so he was almost not exactly ashamed of it, but he knew that this was a weapon that could only shoot him <laughs> yeah. uh, if you use it wrong. And so it's such a delicate thing. Uh, like whenever he's in the club or at the birthday party and the, he's like, you mean the guy's like, yeah, you have one of those photo photogenic memories. <laughs> he's like, you mean photographic? Yeah. He's like, what? He's like, no, that's what you said. I was just, you know, re yeah, reiterating. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, or the, what was it when he was sitting in front of the, the, the counselor and the counselor was telling him to rewrite his essay and he said, what did he say? He said, if, if so-and-so wrote this, if what would, he named some really famous person. Did he? Crap. I was probably, I think I was scribbling notes because at that point he was talking about how, uh, well, I guess I could. I don't know if you're talking about the beginning of the ending section, but. No, is that towards the beginning? When he's like, yeah, I could have, I could write something, you know, about how I grew up in a bad neighborhood and I don't know my dad, but that's all cliche bullshit. Oh, Neil deGrasse yeah, Tyson. Yeah. Yes, if Neil deGrasse Tyson, yeah, yeah, <laughs> this would have been what Neil deGrasse Tyson would have written. Yeah, yeah. And I love that because that's an actual, uh, before this this movie came out, I saw like right, right before this came out, there was a really fun little deductive essay about which day did the Ice Cube experience in that song, uh, Good Day. And he goes through all the lyrics to find out what, by elimination, what days it wasn't he's like based on when the the song came out it came out in whatever like 91 um and he's like okay so it was also on a day where the the supersonics you know lost to the lakers okay so this happened on these days on this year and he's like no he said that there was also no smog checking the weather reports on this and he goes through this whole deductive reasoning to say therefore ice cubes good day was on like i don't know April 13th, 1992 or something. <laughs> He's like, yeah, yeah. and it's really genius. <laughs> and I'll see if I can dig that up and, and add it to the show notes because it's a fun, quick read and it's brilliant. And he's right. Like if Neil deGrasse Tyson was going to take on something like that, that's pretty much what it would look like. <laughs> I love the conversation when he meets Dom mm. about nineties hip hop and how Dom is just as almost just as knowledgeable, which you wouldn't expect. I, I you know, like, Cause you know, okay, this is the drug dealer guy and he's probably not into nineties hip hop, right? He's probably into, you know, like 50 cent and stuff like after that and, <laughs> and Jay-Z or whatever, whatever, like the, you know, the newer 2000 stuff. And, but you know, he had comebacks for Malcolm. He's like, that was actually, you know, <laughs> 1988 and 2001. <laughs> he's like, well, they're kind of bookends. Yeah. So, but that was a, that was really like little little things in the writing like that 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 just kind of keep you on your toes 
just a little bit like because it gives you a little bit more depth in that character like we don't really see a whole lot of dom in this in this film especially in the second half i mean Mm -hmm. he's he's in the first half you know where we meet him we see him at the party and then there's one phone call from him to malcolm and then like afterwards when he's in jail and then that's it we don't really i don't think that we see him again so it's just a little bit but still like we know he exists we feel his presence throughout the whole the whole thing because there's pressure on malcolm um and even if the pressure is coming from aj it's still via dom right yeah. it started with him and so like just these little things of of oh we know who dom is dom is the 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 you know the dope slinger on the corner who's gonna get malcolm in trouble yeah okay get it well there's a okay wait hold on he's not just this dude who slings drugs like he's got he's he's in the okay so he's into hip-hop and he's not asking malcolm to immediately do something with drugs he's like hey can you tell this talk to this girl for me because he's what probably nervous you know and then yeah so anyway there's no and it's great because the timing of the way they lay that out uh is really really genius because you meet dom the first time and he's this friendly guy and he's you know having this uh esoteric debate about hip-hop and one of my favorite things is he's like you can't you're over here talking about you know wu-tang and whatever outcast and whoever and you, you got to remember the 90s gave us some bad bad stuff too and he he throws out i love obviously vanilla mc hammer but i love that he throws out you know fresh prince and to me that's also adding credibility to the hip-hop crowd like you have an opinion there might be i guess some people who might disagree with that but probably not like if you're really into hip-hop you're you're looking at will smith and saying uh i would never in my life own a will smith album but the asterisk on that is exactly what dom or uh, malcolm comes back with and he's he's like yeah but here's the thing he gave us a uh, summertime and summertime is an absolute you know classic you you it's hard to get better than summertime it's it's mm-hmm. it's eternal and so i love you know the credibility that they give and it's a relationship that's building we kind of like them which really helps the next section the next time we actually see dom after that little back and forth Aaron running that Malcolm does is at the at his birthday party at the club, because this is what, you know, I or we like to generally call kick the dog storytelling, because Dom is, you know, to some extent, a bad guy, a villain. And villains always have to demonstrate that they are bad. And the, we call this kick the dog, you know, storytelling, because that helps us identify who the bad people are by having them do something vile and easily identifiable as immoral. Um, and that, you know, kick the dog doesn't get much harder than that. This, But this can be in a really cartoony and like ineffective uh, method due to just the overt nature of it. Right. Like, oh, he just kicked a dog. He's a bad guy. We don't like him. Instead, what they do in this. And I agree with everything you said, man, like the writing is absolutely perfect in this movie movie because they give us dom a friendly version of him first and then even as we're building up to it right instead of being really on the nose whenever he kicks the dog which in this case is he beats the hell out of the the doorman uh the bouncer um and instead of being really on the nose with it they surround it in a bit of comedy which adds this dimension and texture to the scene giving the characters specifically dom more depth but also everyone around him and it also adds tension because they gave the villain a very uh, thoughtful and intellectual and even humorous spin so we're operating at a different part of our mind right there 
And then suddenly it creates this really unexpected contrast when the violence happens. We now feel like he is unpredictable because his demeanor doesn't really indicate what he's going to do next. He's operating out of principles, not necessarily out of emotionality. And that's something we're not really used to seeing out of villains. Villains, especially in these scenarios, are much more emotional as opposed to uh, principled as Dom is. Dom is very thorough in his thinking and logic and what he does and why he does it. He's not he's not a moron. And that's kind of breaking a, a mold or a stereotype that we often have of gangsters and drug dealers. And that's one of the things that adds so much uh, dimension and brilliance to, to the writing that Rick Fukuyama did. Sorry, my brother, like we we're going to absolutely destroy your name. And so now we have someone, Dom, that we don't want to be on the wrong side of. We respect him as a bad guy because of this very delicate and deliberate presentation of him being a, you know, a fully realized character. He's he's three dimensional. We're not just seeing him kicking dogs left and right. Instead, we're seeing him uh, as, as a human being inhabiting a very realistic world. And I love that. I love that very specific type of writing. I also like the the little bits of violence. There's like little jabs of just like, whoa, what the fuck just happened? When the brother shoots himself in the leg, when Dom beats the guy up in the just like punches, the, you know, because you're laughing you know, he's threatening the guy for a good three minutes or something. And then, you know, his his cronies are making you laugh by saying, like, well, what is what is a uh, slippery slope? <laughs> whatever. And and then he just lays this guy out and starts beating him down. And then when the, the cops bust in and they're shooting up the or whomever, the mass men bust in, and they're shooting up the 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 place when they're doing the, the deal, just like oh, random bits of violence, just like bring snap you back into, oh, this this shit is real. You know, this isn't just a funny movie like, you know, this is for real because a lot of times in these kind of I'm not going to call them slapstick, but almost slapsticky kind of, you know, ham fisted, really, just ham, beat you over yeah, the head. Like, yeah. You know, where you have like a OK, so the, the interaction with Dom and the, the, the doorman, right, with his his crony who's like making you laugh. Right. Whatever that is, where he's like saying mm. uh, he's like. You know, Dom's like, no, I'm going to have to mess you up, man. And, and then he's coming, wait a minute, what, what was Slippery Slope? And you're just <laughs> totally taken out of it, right? So like that kind of whatever style where there's like quick humor, that kind of that kind of stuff can get you feeling kind of like like relaxed. Yeah. You know? With with, you know, because, you know, Dom is the serious guy. He's a he's a drug dealer. You don't want to mess with him. I get it. But you're laughing at the same time as he's beating the crap out of this guy. So when the shooting starts, like it just snaps you back in because you actually see someone get shot. There's blood and, and everything. It's not like, oh, I get shot and I fall. It's I get shot and there's blood that splatters. And it's like, you know, someone just died. It's for real. Same thing in the, the fast food place where the, that brother, forget his name, shoots himself in the leg. Like it's close up on the leg when he does it. You're just like, whoa, that was unexpected. Uh, and I love that kind of stuff because it just, I'm like, what is happening next? You're completely, there, there is no blueprint for what is happening next. And that's why I think I didn't expect the ending with AJ I, I, at all. You know, absolutely. They do a really good job of inserting humor in really effective ways, like the narrator, you know, guiding us through the world. And I feel like they do this throughout the movie is of injecting humor 
humor into the tragic. Like you have these really tragic scenarios playing out, but they find the humor within it. And I think to some degree that might speak to uh, just growing up in that kind of environment. You kind of have to be able to to find the humor or find a way to, to laugh or escape from, you know, whatever you're dealing with that particular day. And in this case, like uh, if you think about it, Diggy, you know, the lesbian friend, uh, Kiersey Clemens, character and you know she's she's gay and they're narrating her you know catching us up to speed all the exposition at the beginning and she's like every sunday my grandmother is trying to pray away the gay right and we cut to her in church like that's pretty jacked up to go through this on basically a monthly basis of you know being told that you know we're trying to heal you of who you are that's very like tragic for someone dealing with you know that kind of issue in their life and yet what is she doing the humor in that situation is we look from her point of view and she's checking out the the women that are praying at her <laughs> like she's she's starting to get this into an opportunity of like oh yeah she's kind of fly you know what's up mm-hmm. <laughs> and and then similarly like we cut to the fast food joint where we see a guy who's waiting in line and he gets killed. Like he just gets innocently killed as he's playing Game Boy. And they cut to this mm-hmm. close-up blood dripping on his game. And the narrator pops up and he's like, the real tragedy was that he was about to beat Zelda. He was about to, <laughs> it was yeah. like, wow. Mm-hmm. Like it's finding these really humorous punchlines in these really horrible scenarios. And of course, I think that kind of sets us up for violence in the story later on. Like this is a recurring theme of just everyday violence happening in places that you don't expect or anticipate them to be in. And even on the, uh, the, opening up like catching people up to speed exposition that's that can be a really delicate thing and i think they do a great job here because largely if you're not from like whatever the hip-hop community the black community uh, if you never you know run run around in the streets or whatever this might all be very uh, new and you can get lost pretty quick with the lingo or with the situations and they do a great job of using pop culture references and just straight up like at the beginning right it opens up on definitions of dope you might walk into this movie thinking it's about idiots or that it's about drugs and to some degree it's definitely about both of those uh but more importantly dope is a phrase like it's it's a it's slang for yeah that's cool you know and and so they open up giving you all three definitions and to some degree it's about all three of those things because dope is really something that came out in the 90s that uh, i was really happy this i feel like this movie did a lot to to reinvigorate it you know in, in everyday lingo like i hear that all the time now like that's dope i would never have heard i promise if this movie didn't come out nobody was about to keep saying dope <laughs> like no one no one really says tight anymore like, oh that's tight like you would you would have to come out with a movie named tight <laughs> and make it. i i honestly i say dope i know but i had never seen this movie Oh, right, right. But you didn't have to because the rest of the culture was already circulating it. This movie had already no, done its job. I started it, man. <laughs> <laughs> True, I forget. <laughs> I will say, I will say that probably one reason why I like, and I think that they, I know they totally did this on purpose, identify with Malcolm and his friends is because they're super whitey. Like they, they like white, they do white shit and they even identify it in the movie. They're like, we do this white thing and that white thing. And we get picked on cause we do this white thing. And I think that it was, there's a point to that, you know, like for all of the white viewers to not just identify with the stereotypical, you know, African-American. Maybe, role, maybe right? it's some of that. I think it's even beyond that. I think it's uh, in a similar way to look within the black culture and say, 
you know, there are people, tons of people uh, who, who are black that grew up in, you know, deeply, you know, black, quote unquote, cultures that are this way. Like they just grew up loving manga. Yeah. They grew up loving, you know, anime and whatever, Weezer. Like, but if you're one of these people, That's you don't see one. yourself represented, yeah. in, you know, in whatever, Boys in the Hood or Men's Society or, you know, some of these mm -hmm. other movies that are telling very real and, you know, worthwhile stories about life in the hood or whatever. But this movie is trying to say, and I think what they're doing is we're going to redefine what it is to be dope. Because, you know, that's a very deep, you know, 90s reference and it's, you know, in the hip hop community and they can be both. They can be in the hip hop, in, in the hip hop and into Weezer and they can love whatever. And it's saying, let's recategorize or rethink the way we view people, which is what this whole conversation, I think, is really about is who and it kind of gets into what is a coming of age story in and of itself. And I think generally coming of age stories have a fundamental question that they're trying to ask, usually to the central character, but maybe even to, our, to us to some degree, which is who am I? Who am I now and who do I want to be? And I feel like this is core no matter what age range you're talking about with coming of age movies. If you're talking about, you know, whatever, Stand By Me um, or any other, you know, Sandlot, whatever, there's these coming of age stories that have a really wide age gap of it could be 10 year olds or it could be someone 18 about to go into college just because it's a coming of age doesn't mean it's coming of a specific age it's a maturation process that happens at all points of our life to some degree but it, there's very specific versions of it that happen during adolescence um, and as we're trying to walk into adulthood crawling out of you know our infancy it's this weird in between year and a lot of these tropes yeah. you know you're going to find are going to be stuff like your friends the friends in the film are usually going to be oddballs um outcasts there's usually going to be some kind of unattainable love interest you're gonna have to face your bully you're gonna have to face your fears and your insecurities you're gonna have to figure out a way to break out of your box that is all of those things that are trying to keep you in there and figuring out how to fit in, which I love the realization, you know, during the clip that we played at the, at the show intro is exactly what he's talking about. He's like, man, you know what? I didn't fit in and I'm okay with that. And not only that, it's a good thing to not fit in. I see the world, not just from my perspective, but from a lot of perspectives, because the fact that I never fit in meant that I always had to think about the way the rest of the world is thinking. And it just forces you into so many other boxes. And I love that. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, yeah. You know, there's a lot of, I guess, tropes with coming of age stories and I don't have them all like written down. I, I, I could probably Google a list of them, I guess, but the ones yeah, I always thought it, I always thought of it like a, like as a, as a viewer, I feel like that character is going to be okay. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily that they know who they are. Cause like I said, at the beginning of this, I still don't know <laughs> who I am and I'm 40. So maybe I'm still having my coming of age, but you know, there was a point where I realized I'm going to be okay. Like no matter what. And I think that that, you know, like as a viewer, you know, cause what Malcolm starts as, you know, this, this geek who's, you know, just jerking off every night at, at, you know, on, on weekends, not never going out and like, you know, hopes he gets into Harvard, but is really timid and, and whatever. And so, I mean, that guy, that's, that's a guy who's going to get eaten alive in the real world. And a lot of times the, the main character in these coming of age stories is like, you feel that way as a viewer, 
but something happens, they stand up for themselves or they, they attain some knowledge or some experience that they didn't have before that allows them to, that allows you as a viewer to feel like, man, if he can handle that. He can, he's going to be okay. You know? And that's completely how I felt here. Yeah. Yeah. It's coming to that. I guess that understanding that no one like kind of like exactly what you said no one has it figured out and it's okay that i don't either and i'm comfortable and confident and mm -hmm. you know yeah. going through life like this now like i don't have yeah. to pretend and maybe that's another you know kind of hidden feature of these kind of stories is shedding the pretense and the the fake the facade shedding that to be more comfortable and secure in who you are already you don't need to change to someone else. You just need to be more comfortable with who you already are. Yeah. And that's a lifelong conquest, I'm sure. For sure. Other kind of tropes that they, I feel like they touch on here is uh, losing your virginity. I love that he's presented with an opportunity to have sex, right? With this knockout. But I feel like we as an audience aren't really wanting that. He's kind of been connecting with Nakia and we... I think we really want him to be with her, but we're kind of excited for him. That, oh, yeah, this is going to be fun, but it's a little meaningless. And so I feel like we feel conflicted as a viewer because we want it to be meaningful. And that's a really fun scene. Of course, plays out really fun. I love the humor in this film in so many ways. For one, the humor in this section with her is great because... The, the core of the humor is have someone really, really hot do something really, really unattractive. <laughs> yeah. Right. And then she does the most unattractive. Uh, thing. They build it up perfectly because first you got to build up, you know, her hotness. Right. She's dressed in slinky clothes. She's acting sexy. She's stripping. And, you know, then she vomits all over the guy right as they're about to start having sex. And then, of course, you know, she flips out and goes and like peas in the bushes they have her doing just absolutely crazy you know stuff and it is just a really great heightened contrast and that's where the humor comes from is from that heightened contrast because we've seen you know quote unquote hot girls do gross stuff and it doesn't always play it just kind of you know can come off as just oh this is gross out humor this is just scatological you know garbage um, but here it works so well because they do such an effective job of building up you know her as this kind of sexy icon of you know his manhood you know personified and it's just absolutely undercut by everything they have her do and it's glorious mm -hmm. <laughs> and i guess another you know part of that humor is in this writing not in that same vein but i love that we kind of have this moment where we jump into an unexplained scenario that you know this kind of wait what uh moment where you know malcolm is driving away from that that whole scene that whole section of she's just, she's peeing in the bushes now and he's like i'm not staying here i gotta get to this meeting i'm late and so he jumps in the car right and he's on his way and he's stopping at a stoplight and sees her brother the girl that he just left her brother is now like being chased by the police and it's so unexplained and random you're just like how did we get here? Like what just happened? And we, and that's embodied through, you know, his confusion on his faces. And so we freeze frame and rewind. Um, and the, we play the scenario to catch us up to speed and it's perfect. Like there's just, that confusion is really, really great. And there's another section. I think they use confusion in a very like simple, quick and humorous way, which is that whole Bitcoin exchange. Whenever he goes to the, the guy in the warehouse and they're making, you know, uh, fake bags and he's having this whole conversation about, you know, how do you know which bag is fake? 
it doesn't really matter because the women who buy them, they know that as long as they're white and they're the ones that are wearing them, people are going to assume it's real. And he's like, now hit me in the face. <laughs> and he's like, I want to know if you know the truth, that you know if you're real or not. And so this guy goads him into hitting him in the face and then he does. And Malcolm plays like this timid, like, I don't know if I should stand my ground or run right now. Character so well. And the guy goes, grabs his gun and then says drive and malcolm's like where? <laughs> where, where where do i need to drive he's like give me the drive and he's like yeah. oh the hard drive yeah here you go and just that that moment of drive where because that's what we're thinking too we're like this guy's about to like take him yeah. out to the to the woodshed uh, and he's like no just give me the hard drive <laughs> and that confusion so and resolution good. is just absolutely perfect <laughs> I love that kind of quick and unexpected humor. And a lot of this movie is doing a really great job of being unexpected. And they do a great job of upping the stakes, right? We have this scenario where first we have a wannabe gangster, right? The the brother or, or the son of AJ, uh, Austin Jacoby. His son is growing up in this really nice part of town and he's acting like a gangster. It's a beautiful house. And yet, so let's throw him into a confrontation with an actual gangster and let it be the one who's looking to get his drugs back. So now we have a very great conflict because this wannabe is not, he's not going to cave, which is what you expect. I expect him to kind of start whimpering and crying. Uh, instead, he's like, no, nah, I'm going to pull my gun out and I'm going to finally earn my stripes. That's kind of the way he's looking at it. This is an opportunity to earn my stripes. And then we start intercutting that scene with uh, Lily doing drugs, the drugs that this drug dealer is after. And what I love about this little section is we, I think, as an audience, feel that there are automatically consequences to what she's doing. She's opening up drugs and our history with these kind of situations, you know, through movies and cinema and not, you know, we as people, we kind of inherently know that you don't want to mess with a drug dealer's drugs. And here she is opening it and taking it. And so even though they the film never introduces this as an issue, but there's probably an inherent level of tension that's built in that we as a viewer start assuming. Oh, yeah. Immediately. <laughs> oh, immediately. I was like, oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> they're like because you never know you know i think they're all they're all about ounces right yeah, like right. there was a lot on that plate man there was, she was there were several it. ounces on that plate yeah and it's perfect because i feel like storytelling wise they're not on the hook for that they never introduce that as an issue and it's never a concern to the characters and yet they get so much tension out of it without ever and so it's this perfect slate of hand that the writer's doing to us because he got all the tension out of it that he wanted without ever actually having to load the gun and unload it it's brilliant it's absolutely magical storytelling to me and What's great is they go from being or Malcolm goes from being out of the coming out of the frying pan straight into the fire because he kind of resolves that situation with Lily by driving away. And after that really screwed up thing, he's now this, you know, supposed to be delivering some drugs, whatever. I'm done with that. I'm late for a meeting with my college recommendation, right? His Harvard connection. And this is finally I can move on, except no. Actually, now you're in a meeting with the drug dealer's boss, and this was disguised as a well-to-do businessman. And it's perfect because it's also 
it's doing so many things all at once. And I love the reveal. He sees the, the picture of the kids on, you know, his, his desk and he starts putting it two and two together. We as the audience get the uh, benefit of not feeling clobbered over the head. We get to discover it along with Malcolm so that when it happens, we don't feel like, oh, this is hokey. Instead, we feel like, oh, this is a natural progression, of course. And I love that that aspect because it also kind of points out the idea that this whole film is about, which is stop judging books by the cover. This guy, fine, he went to Harvard, fine, he's an, ex he's an amazing businessman. But that doesn't mean he can't also be a villain, that he can't be a scumbag. There's nothing conflicting about those, those two things. They're, they're not exclusive to one another. So it's kind of trying to train us to stop judging based on, you know, appearances. And of course, we have this great slippery slope moment that is either one, a callback, or it's information on where Dom actually got the concept because this is Dom's connection. Yeah. And either way, it really works and kind of, builds on this idea of there's no wasted moments. This is an incredibly efficient film. And so who were the two, who were the two goons going after them? That was, I don't really remember to be honest. Like they weren't with AJ, right? No, because they like were going after AJ's son. They didn't know who he was. No. Was it the, the thefts, the, the thieves that tried to, to stick them up the first time in the club mm -hmm. in the, no. Oh, mm. it might have been them. I feel like I feel them. like it was laid out in the story and I've just completely forgotten. Yeah, it might have been them. Might have been them. Yeah. So maybe. But, but we never saw them because they were wearing masks. Yeah. 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 Which that okay, whole cool. section was crazy. Like he just opened them up with a shotgun. Dude. And they let it hang there for a second, too. It was like, yeah, brutal. That was what I was saying. It was like <laughs> everything was fine and dandy and then it wasn't <laughs> no it's great like there is nothing wasted in this film i feel like every everyone we meet serves a function that impacts the entire story um even what you were talking about earlier like they're nerds the bitcoin is set up in the very beginning that's like the very opening scene where we meet malcolm he's talking to his mom about bitcoin and it they wait they resurface it later in the film as a method to use it, uh to to move the drugs and it's there is absolutely even his mom plays a really important function because you could, to some degree, strip her out of the story. And to, and to some extent, the story isn't really impacted. Like she she drives him home on the bus at one point. She, we, we see her having a conversation with him at the beginning. But it, she's really, really critical, though, because there's this recurring theme or concept of, you know, he doesn't know his dad. Well, if you never meet his mom either, then you start to feel like he just doesn't have a family at all. And so you really need to meet her to help underline and underscore the idea that he doesn't know his dad, uh, because that is part of the stereotype and the cliche that Malcolm himself is kind of getting at, you know, through some of the, the storytelling that he's doing. And so there is absolutely no wasted moments in this film. And I really love it because this film is talking so much about judging based on preconceived notions, like the security guard, right? The principal, the school, they all see nerds. But in reality, much like Austin Jacoby, they're, they're now drug dealers. Like they can move unimpeded throughout school because of everyone assuming something that they didn't, that they don't know about them. Like, Oh, these nerds, they can never be X, Y, or Z. Same thing with the whole, you know, it's underscored again with the fake bags, the difference between the real bag and the fake one. 
is only who's who's wearing it. And we judge based on our perspective biases. But the beauty, like he was saying at the end, is not fitting in gives you perspectives beyond your own. You see the world from a variety of people. And I think I have other scattered notes, but whatever. I want to just kind of shoot through my personal highlights. <laughs> sure. Because yeah. I love the there's this very simple callback to people who are fans of this director. Um, if you've ever seen The Wood, then you love this movie on another, another level because Stacy, the security guard, is a character from one of his last movies. He, he was a uh, we see him in like the late 80s, I think, playing uh, a high school kid or, you know, someone who just graduated and he's a, he's a gangster in there. And so whenever he's talking to uh, what is it, Bug, Lakeith Stanfield playing, you know, one of the bullies, Bug, he's like, you better ask your dad about Stacy. Like he's talking about him as Stacy, this other character. And it's it's fantastic. Like, that's just such a little treat <laughs> for people who are or, you know, fans of, you know, these these coming of age stories specifically the wood, but also love all the constant pop culture references, eighties movies, right? There's back to the future references. Like you look mm -hmm. like y'all just climbed out of a fucking DeLorean. Like, what are y'all doing? <laughs> yeah, yo, McFly, like, so <laughs> breakfast club, like they just constantly all yeah. the nineties music, naughty by nature, black sheep, Nas, diggable planets. Huge. This soundtrack is absolutely amazing. Uh, I love that. Amazing. What is God. that title track at the end? Yeah, I don't even know. I mean, unless you're talking about Digital Underground. <laughs> no, you're not. I know you're not. The no, one from the clip no. I played. <laughs> yes. That's yes. a great so beat. Good. That beat is killing. Yeah. And I love that, you know, they quote rap lyrics here and there. Like, I love his attempt to get into the I, the world of drug dealing is to say, if Jeezy's paying LeBron, I'm paying Dwayne Wade. Like, he's like, I don't know what it means. But it's like, but I, that's what I know. That's the extent of my knowledge. Like, quoting a random Jay-Z lyric, it's, it's beautiful. Personally, my okay. second to last favorite moment is that they're watching U.S. drone strikes from the Obama era. And it's, oh, yeah, right. it's Obama killing people and they start talking about, you know, U.S. citizens oh, and they reco uh, yes. re recount the idea of uh, the slippery slope. He's like the slippery slope. Yeah. And to me, it's a light nudge that just because it's happening to someone else right now, it doesn't mean it can eventually happen to you. And that's the literal conversation that they're having. But if you take a bigger macro view, you could look at this film and apply that same principle of just because you're not, you know, an underclass or a, a minority citizen at the moment doesn't mean you won't be treated that way in the future. So it's kind of a, a principle of safeguard the rights of people you even disagree with so that your rights by extension are also respected. There's a fantastic Thomas Paine quote that I love and try to live by. And I'll put that in the show notes too, that is very much in that same effect. Even if I don't agree with everyone on everything and I don't agree with Thomas Paine on everything, that's still a really amazing principle. Um, I love that they give they gave that to Dom yeah. to say too. It, like Dom is smart as shit. <laughs> like he's got he's got stuff, you know, he's got layers, man. And you barely that's what I was talking about at the beginning. You barely have any any of him in this movie, but you know this guy is smart. He knows what's going on, right? And that's that's just awesome to have with I mean, he I don't think he's I, I actually don't even think he's the villain in this movie. You know, he does. That's fair. You know, yeah. bad things. 
but I think AJ is yeah, more definitely the, the key. Yeah. Yeah. The key. Right. But he, I mean, he does bad things. He is a villain, but he's not the main one. For sure. But yeah. They gave, they give him layers, man. Like he's a smart dude. I love it. Yeah. And I love that. And they did a really, for such a short, I mean, what, 60 second conversation, they insert a lot of nuance uh, into that short discussion uh, very quickly. And it's very smart from both perspectives. Like they're having a really great, uh, you know, to some extent, depth conversation. Now, it doesn't tell the whole story of Alaki. They leave out some stuff, but there's only so much you can squeeze in, like, you know, yeah, a couple you know sentences. And they did a great job. But I think my favorite moment, <laughs> and this is very much me putting on my my hip-hop hat that i really love in this moment it's very underhanded and it's very subtle like you will miss it if you're not if you don't appreciate what's being said which is at the very beginning there's this comment that malcolm makes about uh jib and diggy quitting band because they refuse to play harlem shake and that's so freaking hilarious because harlem shake is two things for one, the the most recent version of it that was kind of co-opted by, you know, the later generation is it's this idea of a dance fad, right? Where you're playing, you're playing a song and then you do a, a hard cut and then you're playing this whatever music. I'm not going to call it the Harlem Shake because it's not for the same reason Jib and Diggy quit the band. I'm not going to call that the Harlem Shake, Be, but that's what people call it. If you Google or YouTube Harlem Shake video, you'll see like three trillion videos of people doing this ridiculous version of what they're calling the Harlem Shake. When in reality, the Harlem Shake is an actual dance. And you could look up, you know, P. Diddy's Harlem Shake and that that'll suffice. Like the Harlem Shake is a dance and there was a song called the Harlem Shake. And that is why. And I just love that they make this very hardcore principled hip hop stance on. We are not doing that today. We're not going to call yeah. what this tragedy, you know, is, uh, is the Harlem yeah. Shake. And it's simple. It's nerdy as hell. And it's diehard hip hop. And for that reason alone, I love it because there's so many songs that get remade. I can't tell you the number of times I get frustrated when a Ja Rule or a Shanti song comes on. I'm like, oh, great. Here's a B.I.G. And it's like, oh, no. It's it's Ja Rule because they recycled the beat anyway. And so, no, yeah. that part of me just absolutely adores this movie just for that alone. <laughs> That's awesome. I love I love the fact that at the beginning they're talking about like, they're, they're talking about how much they love 90s hip hop. And then it shows them in the in the record store and they're looking at records. Right. Mm -hmm. So they're like analog. They're analog. Yeah. You know, audiophile guys. Right. And so I immediately, I was like, I love these guys. <laughs> this is great. But then at the end when, or towards the end, when he's the first time he, not, not at the end, but in, I guess, you know, three quarters of the way in when he first meets AJ and, and they're talking and AJ's like, you know, if you order, order a CD off of Amazon, and he's like, I wouldn't order a CD. I would download it <laughs> online. And they really get uh, into it, the weeds on that conversation. They get in the weeds on that, which is awesome because because as as into the '90s and and pre-internet as Malcolm is, he's still smart enough to know that I'm not going to buy a CD on Amazon. I'm going to download it from the internet, so he can live in both worlds. Right. He can live in the 90s pre-internet world and he can live in today. And then you have AJ, who is just, you know, 
not with either. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? He's not with anything. He's just, yeah. And so that's just a, a little, I just liked the dichotomy of that. Cause I feel like I'm very much like that. I love vinyl. I love tapes and cassettes and at the same and like, you know, old drum machines. And at the same time, you know, I love new age electronic music too. So, and, and I love, you know, Apple music and, you know, being able to listen to whatever the hell I want at any time. I mean, how, why? Yeah. So anyway. Yeah. It's crazy like through that, that subscription. I probably spend more on music a year now because I am paying whatever 10 bucks, 11 bucks a year or a month on Apple music yeah. than I was before. Like, and I probably listen to the same, you know, 50 tracks that I've been listening to for the yeah. last, you know, year and a half. And PS, PS shout out to App, Apple music. They are better than Spotify for anybody out there because they pay their artists more. So if you're, if you're not sure, like, listen, Spotify is a better interface. It's way easier to find what you're looking for. It, everything they play if if you just let a playlist play and it keeps going and user friendly is it's absolutely way better yep. way better oh my god like it's painful being on apple music from spotify but at the same time i don't even care because the artists get paid more on apple music so if you're weighing the two and you you know want the artist to make more money which they make shite on on spotify like nothing, like next to nothing. You can have, you can have 10 million plays on a, on a track and make like $10,000. It's ridiculously nothing. It's nothing. So, so for like an indie artist to make any money on Spotify is absolutely impossible. But on Apple music, you actually can, you make 70% of what Apple music makes. So Apple music only takes 30% cut, whereas it's almost pretty much flipped with Spotify. That's crazy. We make even less than 30%. So do you, just if you didn't know. do you as an artist miss the, the days of buying yes. tracks? Yes. Yeah. Yes, I do. Hmm. And I'll tell you why one, well, for several reasons, one, because I don't own anything now, it's really hard for me to reference. Like if I'm working on a track that I'm trying to mix, it's really hard for me to reference anything on an actual file of something because i can't you can't reference something on apple music or on spotify because they convert it and it's like mm. you know it's it's normalized so like every every track is the same volume and and everything so you don't get what the artist was trying to do the art, artist might have recorded it and really quiet or recorded it really loud but it's all here so i can't compare it to that so i have to, I, I but i don't have the actual track right? Unless I actually go and buy the CD <laughs> or, or buy the vinyl or something, which I can do and I still do. But so there's that. Uh, but also like, I don't own it. If that makes sense. Like I pay $14 a month for Apple music, but I don't own any tracks. Whereas if I bought an album for $14, I would own 12 tracks and they would be mine. Right. And they would, they would, I, they would have value to me, but the, that's the problem is like the music doesn't have value because I'm paying it to Apple. I'm not paying it to the artist. Mm. Right. Which is, I mean, it's, it's a slippery slope, man, <laughs> because the artist 
wants to be available to listeners, right? You must, they want to be available to you and to me. And most people just want it whenever they want it. But there's something to be said about wanting it and not being able to have it. And then mm. you get it. I go to the store, I buy it, or I download it even, and I have it and it's mine. And I can do with it what I want because I bought it for a dollar, right? And not, not doing that is like, like, I don't know, man. There was a time, right, whenever an artist could sell their singles and for a dollar, like, hey, I put out this new track and it's killing. You know, I just sold a million downloads and they might make, you know, whatever, $700,000 on that or whatever their cut was at the time. Now, obviously, if they sell a million downloads, they're not going to make that kind of return. Mm -hmm. And it also makes it, I mean, probably harder to kind of keep track on. I don't know, maybe kill some incentive and some of the, the, the payout of being an artist. And I mean, I really hope that at some point we find, we graduate to a whole new dimension of, you know, buying art from artists. And I don't know what that's going to look like, you know, but I feel like it'll happen at some point. Maybe it's not for, you know, another 20 years because there seems to be this life cycle of 20, you know, 10, 20, 30 years of media, the type of medium that we consume music on eight tracks, record vinyls cds cassette tapes and digital and then now it's just streaming but i i hope that you know we find that next iteration at some point because it does suck to spend i'll spend whatever 140 150 bucks this year and not own anything like yeah shit what? yeah you spend it you spend that money for accessibility mm -hmm. not for the music no and and that's that's shitty because for I mean, for so many reasons, but I, I, you know, you can't be an artist and not do it. But at the same time, like, would any other art form do this? Really, if I was a painter and I mean, one, I don't know how you do it as a painter, but like, no, if I was a sculptor, like, no, you got to come see it. You gotta come witness the 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 David for yourself. You gotta come witness a, a Jackson Pollock for yourself. You're not gonna be able to, I don't know, get it from accessing some database or something like it's. It, but because it's music and it's and it's turned into ones and zeros, you can just have access to it whenever you want, and it just loses its meaning. And even and film feel, is feel, running into a similar issue. Like, yes. you know, yeah, we're on totally. Netflix and watching everything and I still buy and I know Izzy is building his own, you know, sweet collection of films and Blu-rays and DVDs. I still buy my, my movies because I do want to own them. I do want to be able to watch it whenever I want and not rely on this or that streaming service. But it, it does scare me as a filmmaker. Like eventually I hope to be able to, you know, start making movies, you know, and, what is that going to mean for me and my actors? Like, what do those residuals look like? Because, you know, that's such a big part of being a writer is getting residuals off of your work. And if Netflix commissions a project, pays you one time and they're not going to uh, sell any medium. Like, you, I don't think you can buy every season of Stranger Things. Like you can buy, I think, maybe the first, maybe the second season. And that's probably about it. Like, and so but you're also not exactly compelled to because you can just watch it mm -hmm. anytime you want. 
And so there's a gift and a curse to that for sure. From, from an economic standpoint, I'm glad, you know, people can consume things without, you know, financial exposure, but it does make me worry for the long-term benefit or cost to the art Mm -hmm. community and music movies. And I'm sure there's other art forms that are similarly facing some, some reckoning. Yeah. I mean, the, the other, the bigger problem, not bigger, but the other big problem is that we're not in an age where it's necessarily the album is dead. Mm. Um, and it's, it's all about singles and that's such a shame. It is so, that's the worst part about it, to be honest, because I like my favorite singles. I don't know what my favorite singles are, but when you ask somebody what you don't ask them, you might ask somebody what's your favorite song, right? But it's usually tied to an album, right? At least people of our age mm-hmm. that grew up with records. You know, I can tell you my top five albums. I can't tell you my top five songs. And there, there's because the, an album is like a film. It's an experience, right? A great album is like an experience. It takes you on a journey. You know, Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon takes you on a journey. Uh, Sigur Rós's Talk takes you on a journey. Nick Drake's Pink Moon takes you on a journey. Uh, Abbey Road takes you on a journey. Like all of these, rec- they're records. They're not so- like, there's not a specific song. And that's dead. It's gone. And it's, that's the worst part about it. I can't, I mean, that's such I'm a, fine with. That's such a great point because there's a reason things used to get left on the cutting room floor. There's a reason why songs didn't make it into an album is because it didn't fit into that journey. It didn't fit into, I'm going to create an experience for my, my listeners and for my fans and to anyone who cares to, to put this album on. And if this song doesn't match or fit into this experience, it doesn't matter if it's a really good song. It doesn't mm-hmm. make sense. And it's so yeah. cultivated. And from that, I've seen amazing albums come together. Like Nas's The Lost Tapes is an amazing album. And it's throwaways from of songs that didn't make it into his other albums. That's incredible. Cool. That's so mind-blowing that he was so concerned with, with the album and the, the integrity of the album that he was willing to not include great songs. And instead, mm-hmm. you know, it's just like, it doesn't make sense. It's not going to go. Yeah. And I'm sure just you, you and I are probably the same. Like if I listen to an album for the first time, that was my experience. I am hitting play and I'm not stopping. I'm treating this like a movie. I'm, I'm not stopping until I've finished this experience. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I don't have an answer for it. And, you know, I'm not fighting it either at the same time. Like I can't, you can't fight it. It's just, it is what it is. I just can say, I miss it. Yeah. You know, I miss, I miss the record store. I still, that's why I still go, you know, that's why I still buy vinyl and, and tapes and stuff because like, and CDs. Well, I haven't really bought CDs. Like, I don't know. Something about CDs. I just never really, I don't know. Like, if I'm, if I'm going to buy a, an album, I might as well buy it with like some flavor. You know what I mean? I still have stacks <laughs> of old CDs. Yeah. I've, yeah. I've culled them down over time, but uh, I still mm-hmm. have probably 50 albums. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I used to have like 500 vinyl. Actually, no, more like four or 50. Yeah. I, I got rid of. Distinction without a difference, my friend. <laughs> yeah, like 400. <laughs> anyway, we got off the rails a little bit, but not really because no. we're talking about about music and the, how it's changed. And Absolutely. So what are you going to recommend this week? So 
Okay, I got on this kick and I, I'm starting to watch it again. I had to stop it to do this episode, but I'm so excited, so excited that I'm just, uh, I have to recommend the 1984 version of Dune um, because I'm just I'm so excited <laughs> about the new version yeah. coming out where Hans, Hans Zimmer scored it and he and the trailer is unbelievable and they they um, uh, redid. I sent you that article where they they said how he recorded pink this pink floyd track with these these choir singers over zoom it's just un, unreal and so i wanted I, to go back and watch the original version because toto did the music for the original version and just to to reacclimate myself to that world right david lynch directed it and it, i remember watching this in in high school and thinking like what the hell am i watching this is so crazy and so now and I haven't watched it since then. And so now, you know, 20 years later, 25 years later, I want to go back and experience it as someone who's like, I mean, I'm in film. Like that's kind of what, well, in, in video, it's kind of like what I do. And also the musical side too. And just like the artistry and, and just kind of re-experience it and see if it holds up. I don't, I really don't know, but I'm a little ways in and I'm already loving it. So we'll see. That, but yeah, so I'm going to recommend Dune. Fun, man. Really cool. Yeah. There's a whole classic story of Joe Dorowski's Dune. There's a great documentary yes. on it, too, that is mind blowing. Like from a creative standpoint, I don't know if the documentary itself is going to blow your mind, but the story behind it and Joe Dorowski and the results of him trying to make that movie is absolutely mind melting when it, whenever you realize the implications of his work. Anyway, great, Reco. Cool. That's that's a fun. That'll be a fun time. Yes. I have strong opinions about that movie, but neither here nor there. I'm going to recommend my favorite album of all time, Tupac's Me Against the World. Listen, there there are some people who will tell you Tupac's best album he ever made was All Eyes on Me. And I want to just make something very clear. If you run into one of these people, nod, say okay, and never trust this person ever again. <laughs> this is very important. <laughs> <laughs> they don't know what they're talking about and they're lying to you. They might be lying to themselves. Probably they just don't know. They don't know any better. And, and here's the thing. Mm -hmm. You don't argue with stupid people and you don't argue with mean people because you're not going to win anything out of that conversation. And that's why you just nod and say, okay, me against the world is like my favorite album of all time easily. And it's, it's the album I put on whenever I feel like lost or homeless. And I, it gives me comfort. It's my it's my hmm. my go to for feeling centered and connected with the world again. And so I'm gonna go listen to dude, it. Dude, I fucking love that album. And so yeah, thanks, man. I I, I hope you do. <laughs> um, I will. I will. And so it's one of the first two CDs I ever bought. Like I bought this at the same time I bought TLC's Crazy Sexy Cool, which is also an incredible album. Like yeah. I was really lucky with those. Now, before that, I owned and bought like singles and single tapes. But I as a elementary kid, I guess I just bought singles because that's what I could afford. <laughs> like my, yeah. my brother would buy me like albums and I would, you know, always appreciate Shy or Boys to Men or whatever. But getting to go to the store with your own whatever, 20, 40 bucks and spending that and getting like an album that you go home, you play and it was just absolutely incredible. Nothing ever has beat that experience for me ever that's awesome man yeah. 
So with that, stay tuned next week. We're going to start a series. This is our October series. Uh, normally we do horror films and that will continue in a different way. Instead of just horror, we're going to explore horror comedies. Like we've never really done like comedy horrors. And so we'll, we'll be doing some classic ones. We'll start with a very simple one, Tucker and Dale versus evil. So go watch that. I think it's streaming on Netflix right now. Speaking of free content or, or, or cheap content, <laughs> there you go. but go watch that and get ready for next week. I think you will have a really good time. Don't forget, subscribe, review us on iTunes. Leave us a note if there's something you want us to cover or talk about. We have a new request coming from Izzy. He was like, hey, y'all haven't covered any uh, Paul Thomas Anderson movies. And so he's wanting us to tackle. He... Crap, it's slipping my mind. Oh, he wanted a Magnolia. So we'll get to a Magnolia at some point. I probably want to get to Punch Drunk Love first because I I just really love that movie. And I haven't seen it in a while. And I think it's Adam Sandler's best role ever. And maybe it's, yeah. maybe we'll do like an Adam Sandler-a-thon at some point. <laughs> 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 He's done some actual great movies. I Yeah, could, we would have to... You could get through them pretty quick. But <laughs> yeah, we'd have to, you know maybe maybe pick and choose yeah oh for sure no we're not <laughs> he's done some stinkers man we're not doing whatever eight crazy nights and whatever. but if you want to comment on this episode in specific you can do that at the pestlepodcast.com slash dope and our quote of the day is from ryan coogler there are so many people that don't come in contact with black men whether they live in a homogeneous area that's mostly white or whether they live in places where they don't have to come in contact with them so what kind of contact do they have with African-American males? They have the media and that's it. It's so important, yeah. man. I mean, that mm -hmm. kind of gets to the heart of, you know, stereotyping and putting people into cliches. And to some degree, look, I get to some degree, it makes sense to generalize people. Whenever you're trying to make sense of the world, there are, you know, generalities that pop up within uh, groups, within cultures. But all those things fall apart when you start trying to understand the individual, this person. When you start, mm -hmm. you know, trying to say who is whatever Malcolm or who is, you know, Todd or who's Wes. Like we might all fit into some greater generalizations. But once you start trying to understand us, you have to understand all that stuff doesn't really fit anymore. It goes away. We might fit into a larger context, but it's individuality that ultimately is at the stake of every single human being. There's all kinds of ways that we intersect in ways that you wouldn't predict. And if the only way you understand a, a people group is through the media, then it really begs you to ask, how are they portrayed in the media? And I think historically... African-Americans, black men don't really get favorable attention through the media. And so you have to be conscious of these things and maybe seek out new experiences and ask yourself and, you know, what am I missing? Not only of a story, but of my own worldview. What am I missing? What am I lacking that could, you know, help me understand the world a little bit better and make it a little less predictable or scary or whatever. Like there's, I'm always surprised my family being Texans and, you know, rednecks and really great people, I would add. I'm not just hating on my family over here, <laughs> but they, they're always 
I often get pushback whenever I go backpacking through, you know, countries. I'll go backpacking through Central America or, you know, Mexico or whatever. And they're just like, oh my God, aren't you afraid? And I was like, no, they're, they're, they're just people. They're people like you. I run into people exactly like you. You know, I might be talking to my aunt and I run into people just like them. They take me in, they show me around town, they cook me food. And they're just people and they're so generous and, and sometimes they have very little and yet they're so generous with the little they have. And I'm, I'm always blown away because I feel like my family's the exact same way. If they run into someone who needs help, they help them. And if they would stop paying attention to the media, the way the media portrays anyone, they would start to realize that they will see themselves far more often than they'll see these ridiculous portrayals of whatever the media is going to say about whatever people, you know, anyway. I don't have anything to add to that. That's brilliant. Uh, fantastic. <laughs> so thank you guys. So that's it. That's it. I'm done. That, I got nothing else to say to that. I agree with 100, that 100%. I'm just going to go on a tirade if I do. <laughs> Uh, thank you guys so much for joining us. This was so great. I'm so glad I watched this movie. I love it. I absolutely love it. It's 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 up there for me. And and I love the conversation, man. So thanks for your insights there. Same, thank you. Uh, so make sure, make sure to join us next week, Tucker and Dale vs. Evil. It's gonna be fun. Leave us a comment, uh, tell us what to review, all those things. And please review us on iTunes, every little bit helps. Until next week, I'm Todd. I'm Wes. Go watch some movies.